Open your Bibles to the book of James as we continue our study in this tremendous little letter. No one likes to deal with a two-faced person, someone who would tell you one thing to your face but say something else behind your back or to someone else. You never really know when you're talking to someone like that what they really think, what's really in their mind, what they really believe about anything. Well, James describes someone very similar. He, in fact, he coins a word found nowhere else in Greek literature before the writing of this letter. It is the double-minded person, literally the double-souled person. It's like they have two souls, or they have two spirits, or they have two minds. Someone of whom it is not clear exactly what they believe, or who they worship. He uses it twice as a matter of fact, and probably the more full understanding comes to us in James chapter 4, and it's helpful if we maybe look ahead a little bit to that section to get our, our uh, bearings, if you will, on this concept. In James 4, 8, James writes this, "'Draw near to God.'" And he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Here he's talking about people with impure hearts. He's talking about people who are in their heart polluted by something. And what are they polluted by? Well, if you back up a little bit in the context, you will find exactly what they're polluted by. They're polluted by a love of the world. They're polluted by selfish desires. Desires that control their heart and mind. In fact, he tells them back in verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Here I think you have the essence of the double-souled or the double-minded person. They want at one and the same time to be a friend of God and a friend of the world. They want to fancy themselves a Christian. They want to fancy themselves someone who prays and someone who asks God and someone who depends on God. They want to think about themselves and present themselves in that way. That's what you would hear at times coming out of their mouth. They would tell you they believe in God, but then at the very same time, their heart is with the world. They're double-souled. They're impure in their hearts. They're impure in their motives. Even when they ask God for something, it is so that they can continue to feed their own passions. They are, in in Old Testament terms, in in, uh, even, we might say, New Testament, in biblical terms, they are, they are spiritually adulterous people. They have divided loves, <clears throat> divided allegiances, excuse me. This is the double-minded, the double-souled person. And James confronts them in this passage, as he does even in chapter 1, because this is the person who essentially doesn't understand God's call in Christianity, God's call and devotion. Deuteronomy chapter 6 tells us that it is our purpose to love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your mind. That's God's mandate. That's how we are supposed to approach Him. The double-minded person, however, isn't like that. He isn't sure of God and he isn't sure of God's ways. He gives lip service to God, but in his heart, he really is setting his trust on the wisdom of the world. He really is setting his trust on the riches that he can obtain. He really is finding his joy and his pleasure somewhere other than his maker. Consequently, he is restless, he is disorderly, he is out of control in his heart and mind. Now, if we go to James chapter 1, then, at this point, we can understand perhaps a little bit more as James is talking to us about trials. He's talking to us about how to handle trials. We started to look at this last week in the opening statement of this letter to his fellow Jewish believers. He's written to them. He calls them the diaspora, these Jews who were scattered all across the Roman Empire, particularly those who had come to know Christ. And as we said last time, this being one of the earliest letters of the New Testament, probably the earliest letter of the New Testament, written somewhere between 45 and 49 AD, this would have been written 12, 15 years after the resurrection of Christ. But more importantly, It was written not that long after the persecution that broke out in Jerusalem at the stoning of Stephen when all of the Jews were scattered outside of Jerusalem because up to that point they had mostly gathered there with the Jerusalem church. You remember the day of Pentecost uh, whenever Israel was gathered together sometimes called the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot. The pilgrimage was Uh, for all Jews, all male Jews. So the population of Israel surged during those times. And it was at that point when so many Jews came from all over the Roman Empire, it was at that point that they heard the preaching of the apostles. They heard the preaching of Peter and literally thousands of people came to know Christ. Not only on the first day of that preaching on on the day of Pentecost, but even after that, we we read that thousands more continued to come into the church. And so you had this massive influx of men and women and and people who were with them, their, their children. You had this massive influx of people coming into the church. It created, you remember, a financial crisis. You had all these people who brought enough for the pilgrimage. They brought enough for a couple of weeks, maybe, of travel and staying in Jerusalem. But here they find themselves having come to know Christ and wanting to be discipled and wanting to learn more about Him. But there's no church for them to go back to. There's no group of disciples in their hometown. So they all decide to stay put in Jerusalem without extended bank accounts, without really even jobs or places to stay, and they become a financial burden or a financial obligation, a financial responsibility, we might say, to the local church. The church takes up offerings. You read about this in the book of Acts. They take up these massive offerings, people selling uh, plots of land and coming and laying the money at the disciples' feet. And so that's, this is how they fund their their discipleship enterprise in the early days of the church, caring for them, caring for their poor widows, caring for all of these needs. And this is the way everything's happening until 
One day, a man named Stephen begins to preach, and he raises the ire of the Jews, and they stone him, and a persecution breaks out. And we're told at that point that all those Jews who had been gathered there and being taught every day in the temple and being taught every day by the apostles, at that point they scattered back to their hometowns, back to wherever they came from. They left finally Jerusalem, went, planted churches everywhere, but found themselves no doubt in dire straits, difficult circumstances. They had left their farms, or they left their jobs, or they left whatever it was behind for now so many years, when they return to their homes, they're not welcomed into the synagogues, they're not welcomed really into the community because they now have confessed Christ. They're certainly not welcomed by the pagan Gentiles who are around them, who still would look at them as what they would call atheists because they didn't believe in the, the, uh, uh, the, all the various gods of the Greek and Roman empires. So they were ostracized. On top of that, it was right around this time we learn from both the New Testament and from history that a massive famine swept across the Eastern Roman Empire. It was so bad, as a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul started to go around to churches. We read about in Acts 11 He started to go around to churches to gather up an offering to help the destitute people back in Jerusalem, telling the Gentiles they had a responsibility to help these Jews. And so he's gathering up this offering and taking back to the Jerusalem church, but that's just a really a drop in the bucket. All of these people in all of their various towns are suffering under their fa- under the famine, under the persecution, under the poverty, under the ridicule, under all of these things. They are somewhat like refugees living in their own places. So a massive amount of suffering among these Christians, famine, poverty, banishment, persecution, just the general hardships of life. And James writes this letter to them with these opening words, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. They were to see all these various trials that they were now facing and consider the benefit it was going to accrue in their spiritual lives. To consider an occasion of joy, to face it with a mature attitude, to face it with what we might say is this necessary attitude to face the trials in such a way that they would understand that they are being enriched spiritually by them. But James couldn't stop just there because he understood, as you and I understand, that's a lot easier said than done. It's easy to say, count it all joy, but so many Christians find that kind of joyous attitude difficult in trial. There are obstacles, there are hindrances, there are hurdles that develop that, that can, can prevent us or stunt us or distract us from that kind of an attitude. So what James does 
is he takes that basic instruction and then he expands or begins to address some of the obstacles that would get in your way during these kinds of trials, your obstacles to this kind of an attitude. And he says this, beginning in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will be the rich man. Excuse me. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, we find here James talking about a few different things, but he's still really talking about trials. As a matter of fact, there in verse 12, you can see he still is in this subject matter. He's talking about trials and tribulations and hardships. But in verses 5 through 11, he's addressing some of the basic obstacles that you'll face to maintaining this attitude of joy that he talked about in verse 2. The goal, as he told us at the end of verse 4, is that we would face these trials in such a way that we would find maturity and completeness and a perfection, that we would be lacking in nothing. But he immediately then addresses something that you may find yourself lacking in. That is wisdom. You lack wisdom to know how to face this trial. You, you know that God is sovereign. You know that the trial can work together for your good. You know those things, but you lack the wisdom to know and to understand how all that works together. So he's telling us, if anyone lacks wisdom, wisdom for facing the trials, wisdom to understand what they're going through, let him ask God. That's the basic instruction. You don't understand how you're supposed to look at your trials. You don't understand how you're supposed to learn from them. You don't understand how you're supposed to respond to them. You lack wisdom for the trial. He says, just ask God. Wisdom, by the way, in the Jewish understanding isn't some sort of theoretical, philosophical thing. It is just basic, practical understanding of how to live life. That, that is it. You look into the, the Proverbs, you read the wisdom literature of the Jews, it's all about how you live your life. It's all about uh, being diligent and honest and self-controlled and responsible, all those things. It's about the practical matters of life. So James wants us to understand, if you want to know practically how you're to respond, what this looks like on a day in and day out, uh, hour by hour basis, you lack that wisdom you ask God. By the way, he doesn't necessarily give us the definition of wisdom right there. We know that from the Jewish scriptures, but James does eventually get to wisdom. Over in chapter 3, verse 13, you may remember this. He asked this question, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, 
Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. This is it. This is the very Jewish practical view of wisdom. Wisdom is known not so much by your words, but by how you behave, how you act, by the, by the way you live out your lifestyle. That's wisdom. And James goes on to contrast that wisdom with the wisdom from the world. Verse 14, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Two different kinds of wisdom. A wisdom from above and a wisdom from the earth. And you read that passage and you can begin to get a sense of all the wrong ways to respond to a trial. All the wrong kind of reactions. All the ways that you would not be displaying wisdom. When you find yourself in a trial and you're, you're confronted with the reality that you're suffering and other people aren't suffering and now suddenly you have jealousy. You have selfishness. You have ambition. You have discontentment. You have all of those things that James says represent the wisdom of the world. That is not responding with godly wisdom. There's a proper way to respond with the wisdom from above. It is meekness. It is gentleness. It is peaceableness. It's being filled with mercy. It's being teachable. It's being filled with all kinds of good fruits. It's allowing the Lord to work all of those things in your heart and seeing them come out of you in the midst of that. It's amazing when you find someone in the midst of a trial and you go to them and you want to minister to them and what you find sometimes is that they want to minister to you. I mean, all they want to do is find out how they can pray for you and how they can help you and how they can come alongside of you. And you're like, wait, 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 wait. I, I, I came here to see if I can serve you. But what you're seeing there is someone responding to a trial with wisdom from above. With wisdom that's full of mercy, full of good fruits. So James is telling you that when you are in the midst of a trial... And you don't know what you're supposed to do. And you don't know how you're supposed to respond. And you don't know what you're supposed to be looking at in the midst of this trial. You don't know what you're supposed to be learning. Just ask God. Ask God. And He will give you wisdom. Again, that's easier said than done. James understands that. So he not only gives us that instruction, but he addresses what it might be that would prevent us from that simple equation. We all need wisdom. We all want wisdom. We we don't know why it doesn't always come. Well, James helps us to understand, first of all, that when you're in the midst of this and you're seeking wisdom, there's a danger of doubt. There's a danger of doubt. That would be the first obstacle that he lists here. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God 
who gives generously to all without reproach and will be given to him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. That's the first challenge. This is the first challenge to finding wisdom in the need uh, that you need in trials. You, you simply don't believe or you don't fully believe that God grants wisdom. It's a defective view of God and it's what James is telling you. You can't get the full benefit of your trial. You won't see the full maturity. You won't understand what God is trying to teach you. You won't benefit with all the endurance that you're supposed to have. You won't have the full benefit because you will never get the wisdom you need. And you won't get the wisdom you need because you have a defective view of God. And he begins right there by simply reminding you of who God is. He gives generously to all without reproach. He is a generous God. James will say down in verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, God God is an exceedingly generous God. He's generous by nature. He gives generously. Now, you might view God as this sort of ogre with a clenched fist who's always steaming in anger or whatever it might be, but that is a defective view of God. That is not who God is. God is generous. He's generous to everyone. There is no discrimination. There are no favorites. God gives generously to all who ask of Him. He simply does. Remember, Jesus taught this in Matthew seven eleven. If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? I mean, if you have children, you know what this means. You understand how, how you give sometimes more than you ought to. You give all the time because you just love your kids so much. And he's saying, if you who are weak and sinful and selfish, if you can do such a thing so generously, you think you're more generous than God? He is abundantly generous. Proverbs 2, the Lord gives wisdom from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He stores it up. It just, it's just a, a, a mountain of wisdom. It's not in short supply. I might give, but sometimes my resources run out and I can't give anymore. That's never a problem for God. He never runs out of resources. He has it, he has piles of it, and he loves to distribute it. So every problem, every trial, there is ample wisdom. There is no problem you will face, both internal, external, no matter what it is in this world. There is no problem you will face that he doesn't have sufficient wisdom to give to you. He has granted you all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called you to His glory and excellence. 2 Peter 1.3 So when you face a problem, you don't understand it, you don't know how to deal with it, you don't know how to respond, James says, ask God. He has all sufficient wisdom and He doesn't skimp. 
He gives it in ample supply. The problem is not your problem. The problem is your defective view of God. The problem is not that you have something too big for God to handle. And the problem is not that God doesn't have enough wisdom for it. The problem is that you have a defective view of God. Your view of God, especially in times of trial, you tend to think of Him as a taker and not a giver. You tend to look at Him as the God who is angry, not generous. And so, you don't always ask as you should. Or as Jesus says, you have not because you ask not. You don't receive wisdom that you need. You don't benefit from your trial the way you ought to because you don't ask God because the bottom line is you don't believe. But when you ask, God gives because it's His nature. James says, let him ask God and it will be given. This is exactly what Jesus taught. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. You lack wisdom for whatever you're going through right now. You lack understanding. You don't know which way to go. You don't know what the next decision ought to be. You don't know how you are to respond to all this. Ask God. He has the wisdom and He gives it. And James says He does it without reproach or as some older translations say, without hesitation. There's no hesitation. It's not like you approach God and begin to asking Him for wisdom. He says, you again? I mean, didn't I just give you this morning some benefit? Didn't I just help you out yesterday? Wasn't it just last week you were here again asking me the same? He doesn't do that. I mean, you and I do that, right? I mean, we have that tendency. D. Edmund Hebert says, He does not respond to our petition and then heap insults upon us for asking. He does not offensively recall the benefits already given and rebuke the applicant who asks for more. He does not give in a way that humiliates the receiver. He does not scold because we have inadequately used his former gifts or rebuke us for our repeated lack of wisdom, end quote. Sounds like what takes place in my home. My kids come and, you know, they want a little money for a movie or for, for a um, hamburger. And I start pulling out my wallet and I say, well, oh, here you go. But it would have been nice if you, you know, had mowed the grass or would have been great if you'd helped out your mom in the kitchen. So thankful to know that you don't do that. I'm especially thankful to know God doesn't do that. He doesn't reproach. He doesn't hesitate. He doesn't, as, as the King James says, He doesn't upbraideth you. This is His nature. He gives. He's so eager to give. 
And he doesn't do it in some sort of calculated way. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give you this, but there's all kinds of strings attached. James is telling us that God doesn't give with reproach. You don't hear when you come, well, you don't really deserve this. You're not worthy of this. God doesn't have underhanded motives. He isn't calculating. This isn't the nature of God. If you're failing to approach God because you have any of those ideas in your head, you have a defective view of God. He gives and He gives generously and He gives without reproach. So, ask and it will be given to you. Ask. Ask to know wisdom for your trial. Ask to know how to respond. Ask to know what you're supposed to do. Ask to know what the next choice is. To know how you're supposed to be learning from all of this. But, and this is an important but, James says in verse 6, let the one who asks, ask in faith with no doubting. If you ask now, if you have a, a, a proper understanding of God, if you ask, you have to ask in faith without doubting. Because, as James goes on to say down in verse 8, that the person who is doubting is basically a double-minded person. He is trying to straddle the fence, be two different people at the same time. You're trying to play the part of a person who's asking and, and trusting God and believing in His generosity while all the while in your heart you're thinking that God is some sort of savage and harsh and cruel person. You're double-minded. Or if you're asking... And you're telling God that you want His help, but you're doing it all the while while you're clinging to the wisdom of the world. In other words, you don't really believe that God's wisdom is the real wisdom that you need. What you're really looking for are answers in the world. What you're really looking for are the answers that are going to come from whoever your counselors are, whoever your advisors are, whoever your therapist is, whoever your... uh, sort of group of friends are, whatever they're telling you coming from the world, that's really what's going to dictate and determine your pathway. You are a double-minded person in friendship with the world and therefore at enmity with God. Two-souled. You're not trusting the Lord You're not sure that He's as generous as He says He is. You're not sure that His wisdom is as sound as He claims it is. You're double-minded. You're unsure of God and unsure of His ways. Deuteronomy 4, Seek the Lord your God and you will find Him if you search after Him with all your heart and with all your soul. God doesn't deal with dabblers. He doesn't deal with dabblers. People who want sort of a cafeteria Christianity. Where they slide their tray down the aisle and say, I'll have a little bit of that and I'll have a little bit of that. 
But then I'm going to go over here across the way and I'm going to take a feast from the world as well. These are people who don't trust the wisdom that's from above. They don't believe that meekness and peaceableness and contentment are really the answer. What they believe is wisdom from the earth, that which is earthly and sensual and demonic. What they believe is that you've got to walk in pride. What they believe is that you've got to look out for yourself. What they believe is you've got to have ambition. James says, therefore, you, in all of your pursuits, you're unstable. The word that he uses there, when he says the double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways, it's the word that's translated restless in James 3. In another place, in James 3, it's translated disorderly, out of control. 1 Corinthians 14 is translated as confusion. God's not a God of confusion. So James is describing here a confused person, a conflicted person. Saying you believe in God, but not really believing in Him. Saying that you have faith, but not really demonstrating it. Saying that you want the wisdom of God, but you really don't. And he gives us some idea of what he's talking about with a a vivid illustration. He pictures this doubter, this double-minded person, he says in verse 6, like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind, totally dictated by external factors, pulled here and there by currents in one direction, blowing wind in the other direction, up and down, up and down, essentially with no stability in your life, nothing, if you might say, on the inside that would give you any firm substance to stand against the, internal, the external forces. It's like you're, you just have a belly full of water. No backbone. You're a double-minded, instable, unfirm person. And James says, ultimately, you shouldn't suppose you'd receive anything from the Lord. If that's who you are, if you're this kind of person, you don't really, really believe that God has the answers, don't expect to receive anything. It's so frustrating when you sit down with someone and they're in the midst of trouble and they're in the midst of a trial. They're struggling. They see their, they see their kids spiraling out of control. They see their spouse wanting to bolt and hit the door. They see their career kind of careening or their health or whatever. And you sit down with them and, you're, and, and, and you know that, that the Word of God has these answers and you're trying to appeal to them. And all you hear back again and again are these excuses why they can't follow that wisdom. You soon realize the problem is not understanding. The problem is believing. They just don't believe. I mean, you can tell them what the Word of God says, but they're going to say, yeah, but... Well, I know that's what it says, yeah, but they just don't believe. They are a doubter and a double-minded person. 
James says, if you want to have the wisdom of God, you've got to come to Him the way He says come to Him. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. You do that, James says, and he'll give. And he will give generously, profusely. But if you go and your intent is to debate and wrangle and doubt, he doesn't respond to that. And you will fail. You don't want to fall into a trial with that kind of outcome. You don't want to find yourself like that wave. You don't want to be the person that's tossed here and there, speaking out of both sides of your mouth. You can't, or you won't, or you shouldn't find yourself there in such need of wisdom and unable to access it because of this duplicitous heart. Not sure that you want to trust God, but also realizing that the world has left you empty-handed. And what are you going to do? What are you going to cling on to? Yourself? Well, that's a problem because it leads to a second obstacle, which James talks about here in verses 9 and 11, and that's the problem of pride. That's the problem of pride. This is the second thing that he wants us to understand, and he really presents it in terms of an illustration, a contrast between the poor man and the rich man and the way they face the trial. It's not as obvious in the English, but if, if you were to read this in Greek, you'd see a conjunction there. Connecting verse 9 to verse 8, a little conjunction that ties these two things together and kind of, uh, kind of uh, presents an inference, if you will. And it really makes sense if you understand how James has dealt with double-mindedness, particularly over in James 4, its friendship with the world and enmity of God, its pride and self-sufficiency, ultimately trust in yourself as well as a love of the world. It is the pride which God, James tells us, ultimately opposes, but He gives grace to the humble. Well, this kind of pride is a major problem in the midst of trial, especially when you when you are looking for answers. When the trouble comes, we all have this tendency to want to cling to whatever we can find for security. When the, you know, the ship is going down, you want to find whatever's going to keep you afloat. And so you just start grasping for whatever you think that might be. But you need to realize that one of the main reasons that God brings you into trials is to help you understand that the only thing that's going to keep you afloat is God. To expose, you might say, your self-reliance, to reinforce your need for God when you think that you, you have succeeded, when you think that you have it all together, when you think you've got your career all figured out, when you think that you have sort of, sort of got your arms around this, 
this marriage thing or this parenting or whatever it might be, you think that you have your, your future all figured out, then God sends a trial and it is designed to put you at a place where you know no human resource is of any help. That's what it's designed to do. Nothing that you can touch, nothing that you can necessarily see is going to be any kind of source of safety. All you have is the invisible God. All you can do is pray. Nowhere to turn but to Him. Which is actually where you should have been all along, right? But God has to remind us of that. This is the wisdom that comes from above. That settles its heart on Him. Well, this is what James is telling us here, and he does it with an illustration. First of all, he begins with the poor, the lowly person, the person, you might say, who is already in that state. James says in verse 9, let the lowly brother, or you could translate it, so let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. This is counterintuitive, to say the least, but the reason... Or, or we might say the result of this person who is in Christ is that he's gained spiritual wisdom. If you are lowly, which by the way in this situation just simply means financially poor, it's in contrast to the rich person in verses 10 and 11. If this is a person who is poor, who struggles, who can hardly make ends meet. In the eyes of society, no notability, no high esteem, no celebrated person. No one is clamoring at your door to get all the answers of life. This would have been, by the way, a good percentage of the early church. There was nothing spectacular, not many mighty, not many noble, Paul tells us, were in the church. No, no one really outstanding in the eyes of the world. They weren't the celebrities. But James tells them, look, if you're one of these, if you're one of the lowly, you need to boast. You need to rejoice. You you, you need to glory, we might say. In what? In your exaltation. What exaltation? Well, the exaltation that you are a child of God. You've been chosen. I mean, let's... Look at it in reality. The world's not clamoring after you. No one's chasing after you. But God is. And God has. And He has chosen you. Not that you have anything to boast about in terms of contributing to that. You're unworthy as anyone else. But the reality is, now you know God. Now you are an heir together with Christ. As Paul says in Romans, that if we are children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. I consider the sufferings of this present time, he says, therefore, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed in us. That's the reality. The Apostle Paul spoke of this in 2 Corinthians 6 from personal experience as a a one who had very little to his name. He was one of these poor people himself. 
And he says, we are treated as impostors and yet true. In other words, no one really, really believed that the Apostle Paul was who he said he was. I mean, he had to have some sort of, sort of magical formula behind him to be used the way he is. He had to have some sort of manipulation, some sort of, some sort of uh, uh, duplicitous scam going on. He said, we're treated as impostors and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing all things. Paul was able to glory in those things. Yeah, I don't have anything. Yeah, I I mean, come over to my place. You can see I don't have anywhere to lay my head. Yeah, I don't really have anything, but I can give. I can give. I can make people rich. I can give out the the wisdom of God, the gospel of God, the knowledge of God. Yeah, I I don't have any. I don't possess anything earthly, but I own everything because I'm an heir of the king. Yeah, I'm not, I know I'm not well known on this earth, but I'm very well known in the highest place. I understand all that, Paul says, in all glory. Well, James is encouraging the poor, particularly when you're going through trials, to gain wisdom by remembering and rejoicing and boasting in the clarity of that thought. The idea that you are exalted in the position in which you find yourself, the world may not recognize it, but they are one day going to see because you've been designated to reign over the world alongside of Christ. So whatever your trial, including even the hard financial circumstances and situation that you're in, it's just temporary stuff. Just temporary stuff. Don't evaluate yourself the way the world evaluates you. Don't view yourself the way the world would view you. That's not wisdom. Don't let that infect your thinking. Remember your exaltation and boast of it. Now for the rich, he says in verse 10, he needs to boast in his humiliation. He needs to boast in his humiliation. Because if you're rich, you need to recognize the unique temptation that you have to be puffed up. To be deceived and duped. First of all, the temptation to begin to think Uh, to begin to believe that you are especially favored over your brother, that the comfortable circumstances that you're in can somehow make you think that you're entitled to that. that. That maybe it's a reflection on the fact that you're more faithful, you're more wise, you're more godly. So when the trial comes, you're unprepared for it. You don't understand it. Because in your mind, God has blessed you because you're more righteous. God has blessed you because you're more faithful, which of course isn't true. There have been plenty of poor people, including Paul and Jesus, who were much more faithful than you are. Not to mention 
countless other missionaries and pastors and servants of the Lord through the years. There are poor people right now in your own church who have more wisdom, who trust the Lord more, who are more faithful in their prayers and their study of God's Word than you are. So what you need to do if you're one of these wealthy people, if you, what you need to do is you need to glory in your humiliation. Which is the opposite of really what he's told the poor person. And it tells you the, the profound parallel that's going on here. He's telling the poor person, you're not, you're not glorying necessarily in your outward circumstances, but you're talking about spiritual realities here. And he's telling the rich person that you need to take stock of your status within Christ and within the church, that you hopefully have been brought to your senses through the, through the gospel of God, away from the intoxicating effects of your wealth and the world. You need to glory in the fact that your eyes have been open and you have been brought low. As a wealthy person, you might enjoy a certain kind of prestige and respect within the world. Wealthy people glory in that. They enjoy being noticed. They enjoy being cared for. They enjoy hanging out with other wealthy people and talking about how much wealth they have. And you might come to the place where you actually believe that it is owed to you. That you somehow are entitled to it. But that's not the case. Certainly within the church, you're no better. You're no more necessarily gifted than anyone else. If you prepare your mind that way, then the trials won't catch you off guard. Because all that outward stuff that you believe reflects your inherent worthiness and faithfulness, it can all be gone through a trial in just a moment. James says it, like a flower of grass, he'll pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. The flower falls and its beauty perishes. Four very quick verbs there. He probably is describing the wildflowers of, of Israel, which basically sprout up in April and die by May. It just in a flash. And how many times have you seen it happen? He's not prophesying absolute failure for every Christian, every wealthy Christian. He's really quoting here from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 40 reminding us of what is transient, what is temporary, and what is eternal. He contrasts the glory of man, which is like this flower of grass, Isaiah says, versus the word of God, which endures forever. He's quoting and he's reminding you of this. First of all, as a wealthy Christian, nothing is promised to you any more than any other Christian. And second, nothing of your earthly possessions, your earthly standing and esteem is going to translate into the resurrected life. It all passes away. So if you're wealthy and you 
find yourself, your hope and your boast in your wealth, you are set up for failure in the time of testing. But if your boast is in how the Lord has brought you low, how the Lord has shown you that you are nothing, if your source of security is the realization that God and His grace has been given to you in spite of your incredible unworthiness, then you've gained wisdom from above. If your hope is in your celebrity status or your sort of reputation in the community, if your hope is in your name sort of being out there as one of these successful people, if your hope is in the fact that you're set apart and people are clamoring after you because of your successes and all that stuff, if that's where your hope is, that's wisdom from the earth. You want wisdom from above? You glory in your humiliation. Learn the lessons from God. If you're not double-minded, if you aren't in love with the world, if you know the world is not a source of wisdom, but wisdom comes down from God above, go to Him. Ask Him. Tell Him you need wisdom, and He'll give it to you. But you got to go believing, ready to hear and ready to receive and ready to obey. In the midst of trial, you can find wisdom. In the midst of trial, you will find a God who gives it generously if you set your hope on Him. Well, let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. And a song, just to remind you this morning, we have a visitor reception right after the service. If you're here today and you hear all of this about wisdom and wisdom from above and wisdom from the earth, but you find yourself in the midst of a trial and you've, known, you've never known God, you don't know what His wisdom is all about, but you know you need help. We want to share with you from the Word of God how you can have help because of Jesus Christ, because of the gospel that He brought to us, because of the cross of Christ. You can come to know God. You can come to know His wisdom. You can have His answers. And He will give generously to all who come to Him. Father, we're grateful for this message, this reminder, these really insights that we so desperately need. We who are prone in our hearts sometimes to doubt and double-mindedness. Lord, we want to know you completely, devotedly, single-mindedly. So we pray that you'd help us. Help us to count it all joy. Help us to set aside the doubts that would hinder that, the pride that would be an obstacle so that we can sit and receive and learn and mature the way you've called us to. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.